Thank you. It would be helpful if you could keep that passage open or the, your devices open, as the case may be. Let's pray that God would help us to think about those words to us. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, please speak to us through the pages of Scripture today, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like most people my age, I grew up watching a fair amount of TV, particularly in primary school. When I got home from school, uh, when I wasn't playing outside or uh, doing small amounts of homework, I was watching Get Smart or Hogan's Heroes or The Brady Bunch or Lost in Space. Now, Lost in Space, you may recall, followed the adventures of the Robinsons, a pioneering family who struggled to survive in the depths of outer space. And the Robinsons were pretty much a typical American family of the 60s or 70s. There was mum, there was dad, and there were three kids. But there were three extra characters who featured heavily in the program. There was, of course, uh, Don. He was a major in the US Army Corps who provided some romantic tension with Judy, the eldest daughter, you may recall. Uh, there was also Dr Smith who was uh, something of a uh, cowardly, comedic, bad guy figure, who I think probably really made the show. And, of course, there was the robot. Do you remember sort of the robot? OK, you know, we sort of, you know, yes, I I'm seeing some good examples are being performed over there. Now, the robot was given some great lines which he would uh, frequently utter in his uh, monotone voice, one of the most famous being, that does not compute... That does not compute. That's more like a Dalek, I guess. But now that does not compute was what he would say when he encountered anything he thought was illogical or which was inconsistent with his programming. I wonder whether you ever find things in life which, for you, just do not compute. They don't make sense. They don't fit in with your worldview. I find this frequently whenever I watch magicians. Magicians with their sleight of hand and other sort of skills can suddenly, you know, sh rabbits emerge from hats. Uh, women uh, disappear in cabinets. Men seem to be sawn in half. Uh, ropes appear to levitate with children on them. Or they seem to produce just the right card from the deck of cards, which is what they predict. And you think, you know, how does that work? It seems to defy logic. It just doesn't compute. Well, in today's passage, Jesus performs an incredible miracle on a Sabbath day. He heals a man who is born blind. And as people try to come to terms with it in the passage, for many of them, what has taken place for various reasons just does not compute. They don't get it. They can't see how it fits in with their worldview. But for some, it doesn't just not compute. But for some, particularly the Pharisees, it seems that they don't want it to compute. And it's within this, I guess, less than easy, somewhat divided, somewhat confused context that the man who has been, uh, had his sight restored, well, given to him, is in this difficult context, less than easy context, that he bears witness to what Jesus has done in his life. And as he does so, I think he can be, in many respects, a good example or a guide for us as well, as we try to bear witness to what Jesus has done in our life, in our current context. Well, uh, if you're visiting today or you haven't been for a few weeks because of the holidays, we're in a five-week holiday series entitled I Testify. We're going through uh, various sections of the Gospel of John. And this morning, I want to look at John chapter 9. I'm going to look at the whole chapter, and I'll tell you bits about those earlier verses which weren't read to us. 
And uh, an outline of the points, which we're going to be going through, is set out on the sheet I trust you received in the way in, but are also on the screen behind me. Firstly, I want to think about the miracle of the man's healing in verses 1 to 7. And then we're going to look at the number of interrogations which the man goes through, four in total, from verses 8 through to 34. And then finally, the third part, uh, Jesus talks a bit about the division which he actually brings, and that's verses 35 to 41. Well, let's start about thinking about the miracle which really got this whole situation going in verses 1 to 7. Jesus and his disciples in the early verses of the chapter encounter a man who was blind from birth. And not only is this a very sad situation, but it raises a theological question uh, for Jesus' disciples. So in verse 2, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, note the assumption here that they thought that the man was suffering as a result of sin, which is, of course, quite wrong. Now, the Bible does say that, generally speaking, there is suffering in the world because of sin in a general sense. You know, Genesis 3 and following highlight that for us. But suffering in the world is not proportional to sin. People don't suffer more necessarily because they sin more and people don't suffer less necessarily because they sin less. This is made clear in the book of Job in the Old Testament. It's made clear by the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 13. A tower, the tower of Siloam, fell over killing some people. And Jesus asked, oh, some people asked Jesus, were the people killed by the tower of Siloam? Were they worse sinners than the rest of us? You know, is that why they were killed? And Jesus basically says, no. In effect, that's got nothing to do with it. But people have habitually thought throughout the years that suffering is proportional to sin. Job's so-called comforters thought so. Um, the disciples seem to think so here. Uh, the Pharisees, as we'll see later, they seem to think so. And in other cultures as well, in Hinduism, the law of karma suggests that suffering uh, is proportional to sin. You suffer for past lives and, and, and things like that. And think of the phrases which so often are part of our culture. You know, you get what you deserve, what goes around comes around. Or even the more positive side, you know, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. It suggests that, you know, goodness is proportional to goodness, suffering is a result of sin, etc., etc. So the man here was not just suffering from blindness since birth, but many people would have assumed that this man was presumably particularly sinful, or at least, if not this man, his parents or, or whatever. Now, Jesus quickly corrects this suffering is proportional to sin idea and then goes on to perform a very remarkable healing. So verse 6, after saying this, he, that's Jesus, spat on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man washed and came home seeing. Now, why did Jesus use this fairly labour-intensive, somewhat surprising and a partially convoluted manner to do this? Why didn't he just heal him with a word and say, you know, be seen? Why did he go through all this? And various people have various theories. But basically, no one really knows. <laughs> okay? But the key thing is that he does heal the man born blind. And it's remarkable for a few reasons. Firstly, any miraculous healing is remarkable. But it's unprecedented as well. 
because as the man himself says in verse 32, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of the man born blind. And some of you may have heard of Don Carson, the noted North American uh, biblical commentator. He agrees. He says that you know, there were the, the occasional example of uh, healing of blindness in the Old Testament, but nowhere is the report of a man being born blind, being healed. So in terms of miracles, you could say this is in the Rolls-Royce variety of miracles. But it's not just incredibly spectacular, but it's also very significant as well. Because the giving of sight to the blind is something which is associated in the Old Testament with the coming of God and the Messianic Age and the Messiah. So our first reading from Isaiah chapter 35, it looks forward to the Messianic Age and one of the things indicative of that is the giving of sight to the blind. So here uh, Jesus is also not just helping the guy, but he's identifying who he himself is for those who have eyes to see. Now, in this passage, do people get who Jesus is? That, you know, is he, he's revealing his identity, are people appreciating it? Well, not at this point. They don't really get who Jesus is, but he does have them asking a lot of questions. So in verses 8 through to 34, uh, the man who's just been healed goes through a series of interrogations. The first comes from the man's neighbours uh, in verses 8 to 12. And they are so amazed that firstly, they don't think, surely this can't be the same guy. But he says, look, you know, I am, I am the guy. Do people wonder about whether it could be the Messiah? No, they simply seem to be confused and flabbergasted. So what do they do? They think we need to get some expert opinion on this. And so who do they go to for expert opinion? Well, of course, you're going to go to the local religious experts, aren't they? And who are the local religious experts? Well, they're the Pharisees. Unfortunately, as we'll see, the Pharisees are going to provide anything but clarity regarding what's going on. So the Pharisees get involved in verses 13 through to 17 and they interrogate the man and find the whole healing problematic. Now, why is it problematic for them? Well, particularly because Jesus healed the guy on the Sabbath day. Now, there's nothing in the Old Testament to say that you shouldn't heal someone on the Sabbath day. But in the centuries just prior to when these events are taking place, many Jewish people had developed all these additional and extra rules called the oral law. These are rules and laws which weren't in the Old Testament. They had been invented, hypothetically based on the Old Testament, but um, unhelpfully so, I would suggest. And Jesus, in healing the guy, hasn't breached the Old Testament, but it seems he's breached this man-made oral law at possibly three spots. The first one is the oral law forbade healing on the Sabbath unless someone's life was in danger. Was the blind man's life in danger? No, he was just blind. Shouldn't heal him on the Sabbath day, according to the oral law. Secondly, the oral law listed needing, you know, when you need things, uh, amongst prohibited categories of work for the Sabbath. And I guess if you spit on the ground and make, you know, paste from dust and spittle, you're sort of mixing it together, you're sort of kneading. That was, again, work, you know, seemed to be an infringement of the oral law. And thirdly, it may have even been that anointing of the eyes was also a breach of the oral law as well. And so uh, many of the Pharisees can't comprehend that anyone who had anything to do with God could possibly break these three oral laws. And so they know that, according to them, Jesus is not from God. But some of the Pharisees are confused because they think, well, how could he do this otherwise? Basically, they can't fit the events in with their worldview. What they've seen does not 
compute. What will they do? Well, they think, oh, let's go and talk to the guy's parents. Verses 18 through to 23. Now, the parents admit that, yes, this guy is our son, but they don't seem to want to say anything else about how he may have been healed. We discover in verse 22, it's because the Jewish leaders had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They've already decided that. So it's clear that the Pharisees in interrogating these people aren't on a genuine, sincere quest for understanding and meaning. They've already made up their minds about Jesus. They're just trying to figure out how what has happened fits in with their worldview. Well, after talking to the parents, they still don't know what to do, so they interrogate the guy again. They question him again in verses 24 to 34, and uh, this time their prejudice has been made very clear. They summon him again, they urge him to tell the truth, and then they say, verse 24, we know this man, Jesus, we know he's a sinner. No genuine searching for understanding here. Seems to be they're rather trying to look for rope with which to hang Jesus. Now, the reply that the man gives here is, I think, particularly informative. If you were here last week, you will recall that I said, and when we're discussing uh, John chapter 4, that you are, in fact, a world expert on a particular topic. You are each of you a world expert on something. And the thing you're a world expert on is your life. Right? You're the world expert on your life. And if you're a Christian, you are the world expert on what God has done in your life. And uh, when this man is under the pump, the blind, formerly blind man, what he does, he talks about and he majors on what he's an expert in, his own life. He talks about what Jesus has done for him. So he said in verse 25, and this is a very quite a famous verse, he answers them. Whether he, Jesus, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He talks about what he knows about what Jesus has done for him. He doesn't get caught up in some convoluted debate about the Sabbath day and healing and sin and Jesus' identity. I mean, if the blind guy is going to go into debate with the Pharisees of the day it's very unlikely that he's going to do very well in the debate. These guys were highly educated. Now, he stayed out of there. He, stayed, he said, I don't know about that stuff, but I'll tell you what I do know. I was blind and now I see. And I guess at this point, this can be helpful for us. I've been mean, looking around the room here. I know that there are uh, many people here who would feel quite confident in getting into discussions with non-believers about Jesus and could answer theological and apologetics and philosophical questions and could have quite a productive interchange on the question of who Jesus is. But there are some people here who will feel far less so. Or even if you're a new believer, you probably haven't had the time to even think about that yet. But I guess the man here is a good example of someone who says, look, maybe I can't answer all these philosophical questions, but I can certainly talk about what Jesus has done in my life. All of us, any Christian, can at least uh, do that. We can talk about what we do know, what we are the world expert in. Well, the man's response here seems to stump the Pharisees again. And so with wondering what to do, they just start to ask the same questions over again. Verse 26, how did he open your eyes? I mean, they already know that, don't they? The man's response, I think, is great. Now, I'm not quite sure whether the man in responding is being sincere and just hasn't read the room very well, 
or whether he's winding the Pharisees up a bit. Because he says in verse 27, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? That's like lighting a match and throwing it into a room of explosives. Boom! You know, they hurled insults at him, it says in verse 28. But the man doesn't back down. He says, now that's remarkable. Verse 30, you don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of uh, opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To which the Pharisees say, actually, that's a pretty good argument. I can see that now. Um, you've really pointed out some really important truths. I'm a bit confused as to why he healed on the Sabbath, but obviously he must have a good reason. What I might do is go and talk to him myself, find out what he can tell me, and maybe I need to adjust my worldviewing and things will compute. No, they don't say that at all. Um, they say, you are steeped in sin at birth. Now, they seem to have taken on board this you, you suffer because of sin mentality. You steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They don't like the message, so they shoot the messenger. Now, for the Pharisees and for many people today, not following Jesus is not so much a question of not understanding who Jesus is and is and what he's on about. It's not about not having evidence. For many people, it's a question of not wanting to believe and follow. For many people, it's a question not of the intellect, but of the will. There was a famous uh, British 20th century novelist and philosopher by the name of Aldous Huxley. He wrote the classic work, A Brave New World, which some of you may have read. It's a dystopian novel. And he once admitted, he was, I think he was an atheist, he certainly wasn't a Christian, he admitted that he had reasons not, that he had reasons for not wanting to believe in God, and he didn't want to believe there was any ultimate meaning in life. And here's an abbreviated version of what he said. He says, or he admitted, I had motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed it had none. He says, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is concerned to prove there is no valid reason why he may not personally do whatever he wants to. You know, there's no meaning, there's no God. We can do whatever we want to, can't we? And he says, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. Sexual and political, <laughs> okay? There's no meaning, so he could do what he liked, politically, sexually, etc. Now, actually, Aldous Huxley is refreshingly honest. He says, he, not that he didn't believe, he didn't want to believe, and he had reasons for not wanting to believe. Now, a friend of mine went to church with me back in high school, but stopped soon afterwards and admitted to me a while back that really he stopped going because life got busy, he had other priorities, other things he wanted to do. Had he had to come to any revelation about God not existing or not needing to be followed? No, just got busy, drifted out of it, right? It was a question of the will, not the intellect. Now, before we start getting too arrogant here uh, and thinking, oh, how silly that people, you know, just don't want to believe. I mean, um, all of us would be blind <laughs> unless God had revealed himself to us. Uh, none of us instinctively wanted to become Christians. God obviously changed us. But as saved people... We need to remember that many people uh, don't oppose the Christian faith for logical, thought-through reasons. It can be because they don't want to. So this goes to remind us that when it comes to promoting our Christian faith and to testifying to what Jesus has done in our lives, we may face opposition, which can appear to us 
irrational. Remember, we shouldn't be uh, arrogant because, you know, we're all, we were all in the same boat before God saved us. Now, I was listening to an interview um, this past week with a Frenchman by the name of Guillaume Bignon. I've obviously butchered whatever name <laughs> I'm supposed to say there. But he was a former French atheist, but he's now a theologian and philosopher. And as I understand what he said, he said a lot of the great French atheists who you may have heard of, people like Sartre and Camus, um, and indeed much French intellectual thinking, including his own, they not so much they didn't really have arguments for the non-existence of God, which backed up their atheism. They hadn't necessarily addressed the issues. They just assumed that there was no God. Now, I'm just taking his word for it here. They hadn't, didn't have reasons for it. They just assumed it according to him. And that's what he'd done. And so when, for various reasons, he felt compelled to look into the evidence for Jesus and for Christianity, and then he looked at what these other philosophers had said, or in fact, it seemed hadn't even bothered to address, he realised it were very good reasons for coming to the faith, that French atheist philosophy hadn't really addressed them, as far as he could tell, very much, and he ended up becoming a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And so I think that's a helpful thing to know, that when sometimes we come across very intelligent people who may not be Christians, it's possibly, in fact, probably not because they know something that we don't know, it's probably either they haven't looked into it, they don't know what the information is, or they don't want to believe it. Remember, we can't be arrogant because we'd all be in the same boat were it not for the grace of God. So uh, what do we do when we, uh, in, we testify to what God's done in our lives and we face opposition, either polite or aggressive, rational or irrational? Well, I think we should pray. We should talk about what Jesus has gone in our life, done in our lives. And if and as appropriate, uh, we might be able to engage in a bit of intellectual interchange about questions they may have if we're up to it. But if not, we can just say, well, I don't know about that. I'll look into it, but I do know what God's done in my life. Now, I'm not aware that Aldous Huxley ever came around to faith. But the French gentleman, uh, Guillaume Bignon, did, and I hope the friend I referred to as well uh, will eventually one day as well. Well, back to the man in question who's had his eyesight restored, or given to no, not restored, <laughs> given for the first time. Jesus finds the man and talks to him in verses uh, 35 to 41. And Jesus, uh, in, after this, reveals that, in fact, Jesus' coming will bring some level of division. Verse 39 is key. Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world, so the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. So Jesus will allow the blind to see. Uh, here with this man, it's both physically, but also spiritually. Near the start of the blind man's encounter with Jesus, he presumably thought Jesus was a man. By the time you get to verse 17, he's concluded that Jesus is a prophet. By the time we get to verse 33, he says that Jesus is from God. By the time we get to verse 38, he believes Jesus is the Son of Man. You see, Jesus has unblinded him spiritually and he's come into a progressive understanding of who Jesus is. But by contrast, there are those who see, like the Pharisees, but who are in effect become blind. The Pharisees go nowhere in this. Their thinking does not develop. Uh, their prejudice against Jesus has been fixed. Now, it's in this sort of, I guess, divided, blind, non-blind world in which we live as Christians and in which we seek to live the Christian life and explain what God has done in our lives. Some people will be interested, some won't. Some people will get it, some won't. But we sometimes might need courage. 
Uh, the gentleman from the 8 o'clock, our earlier service here, um, who I was reading something rather he wrote recently, uh, he tells a story about 40 years ago, Jim Wenman, if you know Jim Wenman, this is the guy, he said when he was on his honeymoon in Tasmania 40 years ago, he and his uh, then new wife went to a small church, they went to an evening service, and during the service an 18-year-old man uh, stood up and um, shared. And apparently at this service he said that during the week he'd been um, viciously persecuted by his fellow carpenter workmates, he's obviously worked as a carpenter as an 18-year-old kid, and he felt like walking away from the faith because of this opposition he was facing. But he didn't. Instead, he prayed to God and rang some of his friends from church and asked whether they would pray for him as well. He then testified to the power of God that God helped him to continue to witness to his fellow carpentry mates. And even a couple of his mates ended up wanting to talk to him about God and, I guess, the meaning of life. And they asked whether the people in the church service would pray for these young men and, I guess, him as he talked to them over the coming weeks. Far more ordinary but not unfamiliar story. Someone trying to testify to what God had done in his life, faces opposition. What does he do? Admits it's hard, prays, gets prayer support and gets on with it, which I think is what uh, the man formerly blind here does as well. Let me conclude. Each of us, if we're Christians, thanks to the grace of God, um, bear testimony to Jesus in a divided world. Uh, in the world in which we live, some people may not understand it. They may not want to understand it. So we should pray. And like the once blind man or that Tasmanian carpenter, 18-year-old guy, we should show courage. And perhaps uh, we can engage in intellectual interchange as people raise questions about the faith and raise various issues. But if we can't do that... All of us can speak about that upon which we are the world expert, which is the work of God in our life. And so like uh, that formerly blind man in John chapter 9, who says, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this, this wonderful account uh, about how physically and even more importantly, spiritually, this man uh, was given sight by, by, by you. And Lord, we do thank you for your mercy on, on many of us here who you have allowed us to see spiritually. And Lord, we do pray that we would be prayerfully reliant on you and uh, courageous as we testify to your work in our lives. And that regardless of how well we feel equipped to enter into detailed conversation about the, the merits of the Christian faith with others, that you will give us the courage and the opportunity just to testify to what you have done in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.